The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. This week, we speak to Tom Mole about the history of the book itself. Now, I heard a story once about a professor who came into class with a, a collected works of Shakespeare and then he ripped it up and threw the pages around. The class were appalled. They gasped. They couldn't believe that he was doing this. And, uh, and so that shows how much our reverence for authors, for literature, for words, for stories, for ideas gets transferred onto the material form in which those words and ideas circulate. And we reflect on the most ancient long poem known to exist, Gilgamesh, with poet and publisher Michael Schmidt. But first, Sunday saw the announcement of the Forward Prizes for Poetry at a glitzy evening of readings on London's South Bank. Let's listen in to some of it. And the winner of the Felix Dennis Prize for Best First Collection of 2019 is Stephen Sexton. May this unhaunted house be yours, and may it be happy and bright. May the creek in the rafters be a sparrow returning to nest after all these years, and before the many more I step aside. And if you find, someday, dear friend, my sad head upon your shoulders, go out into the world. Say, world, it's been so long. Say, world, hello. The winner of the Forward Prize for Best Collection 2019 is no stranger to the forward stage, Fiona Benson. It's hard to explain. Let me show you with the anatomical dolls. They have buttons for eyes and details under their pants you wouldn't believe. Look underneath at the girl's folded labia, vagina, the tucked-in silk and string umbilical of a pull-down poppet fetus, or the male's miniature penis, his cotton-bag scrotum, his sphincter ringed in little puckered stitches. So the girl doll took off her frilly knickers and the boy doll pushed down his trousers and did this. And you might think it was love if you hadn't seen act one. The male doll playing punch, Judy trembling and bruised her bloody nose. Tell me what's the word for this, this spreading of the legs and lips to delay violence. And where's the rough music, all my Sharivari pots and wooden spoons to out you, Zeus, to drive you through the streets with songs that find a name for you at last, you filthy pimp, you animal, you rapist. 
we don't often cover poetry on this podcast, um, but the two occasions when it, it sort of bursts out and it is impossible to ignore in the UK are um, on the occasion of the Forward Prizes um, and, and the T.S. Eliot Prizes. And in both cases, they take place on London's South Bank. And um, it, I think that we're looking at the, at, at the moment, we're looking for poets to come up with some sort of a, um, answer to our really troubled, um, difficult, technologically shifting and morally shifting times. And that's precisely what these prizes have done in all sorts of interesting ways, which you see in these two winners, the big two winners of the evening. Um, the, the winner of the first collection, the Felix Dennis Prize, was Stephen Sexton, who's a Northern Irish poet, who um, goes back to his obsession with Super Mario when he was, when he was a kid. And um, he said he wanted to, to, to go through all the levels of Super Mario, but he maps that on, onto the geography of Ireland. And <laughs> Ireland is... No, is is an and that there is this donut um, concept in Super Mario, which and there is Northern Ireland is a donut in that it has lots of missing bits, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that in turn miss it takes him maps back to his childhood and the fact that he's just lost his mother. So it's it's sort of personal and and geographical and also past and present, but the biggest winner of the evening is Fiona Benson and um, it's only her second collection actually that she's won with called Vertigo and Ghost and it's in two sections and the first um, recasts Zeus as a predatory swimming coach he and you, you have him sort of swipping up, s- stripping off to a minuscule red speedo and bulges profanely <laughs> you just you, very visual um, but he and he it's 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 basically this, the series of rapes he carried out and the voice on all these voiceless women um, and how there could possibly be any sort of retribution and obviously it maps very clearly onto the all the Harvey, Harvey Weinstein and Me Too movement and then in the second um, section she goes back to the 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 terrain which is familiar from her debut collection um, Bright Travellers from two thousand fourteen. Um, which is is about motherhood and miscarriage and the traumas of 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 being a woman um, in the modern world, but there are all sorts of fascinating correspondences between these two eras. For example, um, Zeus is is most commonly represented as a bull, and in the second half you have a a, a flood has a bull has has been strung up on a tree by sudden floodwaters. She goes past and just sees this bull carcass <laughs> hanging from a tree and um, so in something like that that's both an anecdote about seeing a bull in a tree but it's also you say is that about the death of old mythology mythological frameworks you know there's this 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 bull which the flies are eating mm. and most shockingly of all in a in a poem which is sort of a very homely poem really about going into a changing room with her child to change her child out of her swimming costumes um, she says, we're not meant to write of the shower, we who were not there, but on mad days, it's all I can think of. So she's daring to invoke the Holocaust mm. in in these stories of being a woman in the modern era and being a mother. And, and you know, you just realise actually that relates back to the idea of the audacity of the Greeks. And they told such huge stories, but it was owned by men. Mm-hmm. And here she is as a mother in a normal in a normal life, owning these really horrific, overwhelming stories. 
Well, just a few days ago, it was announced that Fiona Benson is also up for the T.S. Eliot Prize with Vertigo and Ghost. Um, so good luck to her. Maybe she'll get both. Um, the Ford Prizes for Poetry Ceremony is uh, part of the Southbank Centre's Poetry International Festival, which was set up by Ted Hughes in 1967. Uh, the ceremony takes place each year in Southbank Centre's Queen Elizabeth Hall. Tom Moll is Professor of English Literature and Book History at the University of Edinburgh and Director of the Centre for the History of the Book. In his new work, The Secret Life of Books, Why They Are So Much More Than Just Words, Tom looks at books as physical objects and how our experience of reading has changed through time. Could modern technologies transform the ways in which we read our favourite stories? Can you claim to have read a book if you've only listened to the audio version of it? Richard spoke with him to find out. Books are gateways to other worlds. They're creations of the mind which can remove us from the messy business of the physical realm. But they're objects as well, aren't they? When did it first strike you that the book that you were reading was also just made of stuff? That's right. I think books are living this kind of double life. We often think of them as just like containers for words, vehicles for information, for entertainment. But they're also things. And I remember very vividly when I was an undergraduate um, trying to read Middlemarch and being halfway through the book and suddenly noticing that I was sure I'd read this before. I realised that there was a whole section of pages that had been duplicated and a, a corresponding section was missing. And I sort of flicked back a few pages and there, there were the same pages again. And that really stopped me thinking about this book as you know a delivery system for words and got me thinking instead about actually this book is a material thing you know it's been manufactured in a factory it's and it's gone wrong and that was really the first kind of time that I thought about the book as an object as a thing the real kind of the bookness of the book. Yeah, so I wanted to ask a little bit about the codex, but first of all, just tell us what a codex is. Yeah, so a codex is the book that we are familiar with now. Probably all the books that you've handled are codices. That's the plural of codex. And so it's a book with lots of pages stacked on top of one another and held together along one side by a spine. So you can st- you can riffle through it? You can riffle through it, you can move backwards and forwards, you can have kind of random access like you do with an encyclopedia, just open it up and plunge in, as well as sort of linear access where you start at the beginning and work through to the end. Now, when did the Codex first start? I mean, you say that it kind of took off between about 100 and 500 CE, just as Christianity was kind of gathering steam. But you also suggest that's no accident. What kind of reading do you think the Codex let Christians do? That's right. I mean, it's interesting. And there's a a famous uh, moment in St. Augustine's Confessions where he hears the children outside his window saying, take it and read. And he picks up his Bible, his, his gospel, and he opens it to a passage and reads the words that kind of bring about his conversion. So there's a deep kind of affinity between Christianity and the Codex. And this is partly because they were emerging at the same time. The Codex appears right around the beginning of the Common Era. It's used for some Latin poetry, and it's praised at that point for being easy to access, easy to transport, uh, small in size. But it's also early on is adopted by Christians. And if you look at the surviving records from the first five centuries of the Common Era, you see that books which are known to have been produced by Christians are more likely to be in the Codex form than books known to have been produced by non-Christians. And is that because they were flicking backwards and forth to find the right bit of scripture or whatever? Well, I think it's the two things emerge together, right? The, the Christians seem to have been early adopters of the Codex. They seem to have kind of developed the Codex as a technology. The format in which they were reading and the way in which they were reading 
kind of graft onto one came another. together i said i, mean, yeah. I want to just sit back and, th- and think a little bit about the thingness of books just for a moment because there's something slightly gauche about thinking of books as objects i mean think of all the scorn for gwyneth paltrow's book curator the immaculately named thatcher wine is this partly because books are objects with a purpose that they're, they're there to be read so that thinking them as kind of things is neglecting that purpose right well we often think that we actually want to get beyond the thingness of the book that uh, you know we want to not look at the book but look through the book to the world of the author and that that's you know what reading is really about is about getting lost in a book and when you get lost in a book the book itself gets lost as well because you're looking through it rather than looking at it and that's I think that that's kind of deeply embedded in western culture because it it seems to me to kind of prop itself up on the opposition between the body and the soul, right? The book is to the body as the words are to the soul. And just as the soul can move from one incarnation to another, can transcend its fallible earthly body, so the text can move from one book to another, uh, can leave behind the broken, dog-eared, coffee-stained paperback and move into some more you know, beautiful Luxury incarnation. Luxury leather edition. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, mean, I guess I'm just wondering as well, because the, the idea of something having a purpose is like halfway to something being almost alive. And is that, again, part of our emotional connection is because we think they're kind of half alive. They're almost sort of people. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that people often, even if they don't necessarily think they're going to read a book all the way through again, they often hang on to it. I heard a story once about a professor who came into class with a, a collected works of Shakespeare, and then he ripped it up and threw the pages around. And so there was a kind of miniature snowstorm of fragments of paper around him. And he did this because he wanted to suggest to the class that Shakespeare's plays aren't in the book. They're in they're somewhere else. They're in language, in the world of ideas. But actually, I think it was really the opposite because the class were appalled. They gasped. They couldn't believe that he was doing this. And, uh, and so that shows how much our reverence for authors, for literature, for words, for stories, for ideas gets transferred onto the material form in which those words and ideas circulate. Now, you say that the codex kind of was emerging around the, uh, the around 100 to 500 CE, but it's, I mean, that puts it as a relatively new technology. I mean, how does it compare with uh, scrolls or clay tablets or, or even a Kindle? That's right. I mean, there were, there were lots of different technologies that the book has made use of through time as it moves from being uh, a clay tablet to being a scroll to being a codex to being a a codex on parchment to being a codex on paper uh, to being a hardback to being a paperback and so on now now to being a kindle uh, or something that you read on your laptop or on your tablet looking at the history of that can really help us to think about how books relate to different technologies and how they navigate moments of media change like the one that we're living through at the moment. Mm, yeah, I mean, one of, the things, one of the things that Jeff Bezos did when he invented the Kindle, when he set out to do that, was he explicitly wanted to mimic the codex. He wanted to make it a bit like a book that you held in your hand. But 
despite all the kind of page turning technology, isn't a Kindle a bit more, isn't on ebooks in general, a bit more like scrolls? It's interesting how technologies don't simply replace each other, right? It's not an on off switch. It's not like there's one day in the past where print arrived and then everybody stopped using manuscript. Uh, just like now with the arrival of the Kindle, we haven't stopped using books. They continue to work alongside each other, but they do change one another's meanings. And they often kind of interestingly call back to earlier moments. So when you look at the first printed books, you can see how they're imitating manuscripts. Uh, Gutenberg, when he prints his famous Bible, uh, one of the most important early printed books, he leaves space for coloured initials to be painted in afterwards. And the guys who are doing that are the people who've been working on illuminated manuscripts, you know, because that's where the expertise is. So he gets them. And so that's actually a kind of hybrid manuscript print um, technology being used there. So you can see all these ways in which new technologies become familiar partly by imitating or making use of or calling back to existing technologies. I mean, you say that the, the Kindle is not only a book in some sense, it's also a bookshop and also a publishing house. But uh, you say you only managed to get two cheers for digital publishing. Why only two? I think that's right. Only two cheers for digital publishing because there are lots of things that are changing when you change the format of the book. And what I'm trying to do in my book is not to sort of set up a kind of heavyweight title fight between ebooks and printed books, but to think about what changes when the format of the book changes and to get people to think about how printed books are so deeply embedded in our sense of ourselves, in our relationships, in our society, that when you change the format of the book, all of those things will change. Yeah, we haven't even begun to mention audiobooks yet. Is an audiobook a proper book? Is listening to an audiobook really reading? I had a, a student who had written an exam paper about Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. And the student wrote in the exam paper that he or she wasn't sure how to spell the name of one of the characters in that novel because they'd only listened to it and not read it. And at first I thought, ah, this is outrageous. How <laughs> dare this student write an exam answer on a book they haven't really read. All they've done is listen to it. But then I thought, well, you know, actually, is that true? Is that, you know, apart from the fact they don't know how to spell this character's name, is the experience of listening to the book that different? And of course, there's a long history of listening to books that goes back well beyond the technology for recording them. Lots of people would have first consumed novels by hearing them read by other people, by members of their family, or you know, in some cases, in coffee houses or pubs and so on. So I, I thought actually, you know, maybe that's just a different kind of reading. Uh, and I, I looked at the student's answer again and gave them a good mark. Because actually, as it turned out, they had read it in some sense. I mean, I guess, so, I mean, your answer appears to be, forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, that, that there are all these different technologies, all these different formats, and they will coexist because they have different things that they do well. They will coexist but they will also change each other, right? So you're now at this point where you can very easily get a book on your Kindle or on your laptop to now choose to buy the paper book, especially to choose to go into a bookshop 
and buy the paper book. That becomes a, a declaration of intent, a declaration that you know the, the default option doesn't necessarily suit you. And when printed books are the default option, it doesn't mean that in the same way, right? So a bit like going to buy a vinyl record now rather than downloading an MP3, you know, signals something about you, you know, that you, you demand something slightly different from your listening. So, I mean, on this podcast, I think we're always most interested in what these changes, what effects these changes have on the books we get to read. So what do you think that's going to have as an effect on the texts? I think it's interesting how, why we still keep producing new paper editions of texts that are now out of copyright and are freely available on the internet. And that really suggests ways in which the paper book might be adding value to those texts. And so it may be that we actually get the same things to read, but we get different experiences of them. And it may be that that ends up being a kind of form of cultural distinction that, you know, you make do with uh, a text online, maybe you know, formatted using optical character recognition software that uh, contains some mistakes that, but that you're happy to put up with because you're going to get a free text. I might you know, go out and buy a hardback copy of the book with a lovely dust jacket and a ribbon page marker printed on beautiful thick paper and go and sit in my study and read it. And so that, you know, that might become a marker of cultural distinction. Now, whilst we're in the study, I wonder if books en masse, books altogether, whether that has a different set of meanings than an individual book. Yeah, this is something I'm really interested in, is the way that books gathered together in large numbers start to mean things that none of them individually say. And so, you know, I, as a professor of English literature, I spend quite a lot of time in huge research libraries, like the British Library just down the road from here. And there you see books gathered together in vast numbers, unimaginable numbers, far, far more than anybody could read in a lifetime, even if they did nothing but read. And that means that your experience of the book is changed in important ways, I think, that your absorption in a particular book is kind of shadowed by this sense of all the other books you could be reading and all the other books you'll never read. So books in large numbers mean different things. But they can be straightforwardly intimidating. Yes, and sometimes they're meant to be intimidating. So, you know, one of the things that big national libraries do is gather large numbers of books together in order to make the point that you know, this is a learned nation. In the book, I write about the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, um, which is a huge structure with four big towers, each at the four corners of the site, like open books. And that clearly is designed to materialise the knowledge of the nation and to make clear that you know, the nation is a kind of intellectual powerhouse. Uh, I guess writing and publishing, you say, is, is an attempt to ward off death, to save something of ourselves from oblivion. But couldn't it also be seen as an act of hope, investing time and treasure and energy in the idea that someone somewhere might want to pick it up and read it? It is an act of hope, and an act of hope sometimes against the odds, because you know, if you've been to a giant library, you think, well, you know, what are the chances in this enormous library that anybody in the future will encounter my book? But I do think to, to write a book is to imagine a time beyond your current moment 
when your book will be read. Now, you know, that might be next week or you know, next year, perhaps. Um, but it might also be, it at least opens up the possibility of it being in the distant future. Uh, and that's a really powerful motivation. But it's also something that reading does. Most of us spend most of our time reading modern books, books produced quite recently. But books are durable. They last for hundreds of years um, if you know, kept in relatively benign conditions. Uh, and so books also are a way of kind of unmooring us from our absorption in the present moment, giving us a better perspective and relativizing our kind of sense of being stuck in this particular time and place. What about your own work? I mean, you're a writer yourself. Do you imagine a scholar calling up your secret life of books from the stacks in 500 years or 5,000 years? What will that be like? I mean, will they, will they get the book itself? Will they get an electronic version of it? How will they encounter it and what will they make of it? Of course, the odds are against this. The chances are that, it, you know, no one in the far distant future will read my book. But uh, there will still be libraries of, in some form. Uh, there will still be readers in some form, whatever that means. And so there's always that possibility. And I find that quite a hopeful idea. Tom Moll's The Secret Life of Books, Why They Are So Much More Than Just Words, is published by Elliot and Thompson. After the break, we're talking about an ancient poetry classic, Gilgamesh, and what it can teach us about engaging with remote cultures. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. The Epic of Gilgamesh is the story of a hero of Mesopotamian mythology. Gilgamesh is two-thirds divine and one-third mortal, a leader thought to have ruled between 2800 and 2500 BC. Gilgamesh is the oldest long-form literary work in history. For those who are unfamiliar with the story, Gilgamesh is sort of this godlike king and he's really horrible. He sort of enslaves populations and habitually rapes all the brides of the men in his kingdom and the gods decide that they need to create a rival in order to stop his bad behaviour. Um, and so they make a man from clay and his name is Inkidu and he later goes to fight Gilgamesh and then they become friends because he uh, they have this fight and they sort of draw but he sort of says to Gilgamesh oh well, you, you know you're amazing and you know we're, we're we're a match for each other so then they become friends and team up and then the gods are unhappy with that um, especially because they start killing a bunch of demigods in Kido in Kido is then uh, he falls sick and dies but he's basically killed by the gods and the grief-stricken Gilgamesh sort of wanders around uh, lamenting the loss of his friend and tries to basically find immortality. Well, I'm very impressed by that, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> Pretty much like Zeus, really, isn't it? Except <laughs> without, yeah. the, without the immortality. Bad-behaving men that have a lot of power. <laughs> um, and there, there have been a lot of translations of Gilgamesh, and some of them are different. And um, There's some things like there's this 12th tablet of uh, Gilgamesh, because uh, they're all written on tablets and they all have different authors and no one's really been able to identify who the authors are. And there's this 12th tablet where Enkidu comes back from the dead. And in some translations, they say, oh, it, he's not back from the dead. It's just Gilgamesh had a son and called him Enkidu. So it sort of depends on who translated it, what version of the story you get. So it's one of these things, uh, stories that, that actually really, to, to have the, the life of a book. This is yes. the life of a book, really. Yeah, isn't exactly. It? The book, but a book. And um, Michael Schmidt um, took this task up by asking 50 poets what the poem meant to them. It's one of those poems that every poet seems to have a, a view about. Um, and he talks about, he goes back through the history of translations, including um, the 1960 classics version that 
I certainly that was my first encounter with it, um, which um, it's it's you know it's become one of the biggest sellers for Penguin in terms of poetry ever probably, um, and it 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 sort of totally distorts it along colonial lines um, right. as you know then that's the, the fate of a classic really is always to be distorted along <laughs> along the lines of whatever preoccupation the current climate has yeah and so and, and that was nk sanders that did that translation and there's this whole thing about she introduced the 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 pronoun i into the opening um and that was just because of the odyssey yeah, basically she, she, has this first person perspective so so she was so she was sort of uh, domesticating it because we we all know well the people in her tradition all knew about the odyssey and so she was sort of trying to bring it within that tradition of of the of epic but actually it belongs to a far earlier and and different tradition and and so part of what michael schmidt's trying to to investigate is its differentness Mm. and and you know which is not to say inaccessibility but what it is that is is not not the same as 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 we have always owned it to be yeah. um, well, but yeah. it has it has um, inspired a huge amount of, of popular culture hasn't it yes including one episode of Futurama <laughs> which I, love. I, I was racking my brains I watched loads of Futurama I can't remember that episode but, uh, maybe somebody listening to this podcast will be able to send me the clip <laughs> and to Japanese rock music which I was not expecting <laughs> but uh, when Michael Schmidt came into the studio Richard started by asking where he first encountered the poem and what he first made of it. I first encountered it, at least in portions of it, at school when we were doing our Bible studies course. I remember finding the figure of Enkidu really beguiling. He was, he was you know, the, the wild man, the, the, the green man, if you like. I found him very attractive. Uh, the, the, the Gilgamesh himself always struck me, and still strikes me to some extent, as, as, a, as a spoiled brat, a kind of um, a grown-up spoiled brat, a monster kind of figure. I'm wondering if writing your book has changed your reading of the poem. As I wrote the book, I realized how integrated the um, story is, not in terms of narrative, but in terms of motif, if you like, you know, the, the continual repetition of certain numbers. I also sensed that there were changes in the characters. Obviously, Gilgamesh himself alters from being a horrible uh, tyrant who, who enjoys first night rights with all the, the, the wives-to-be of his kingdom into this rather... Uh, still very aggressive and warlike, but um, this this uh, rather uh, friend-obsessed um, protagonist. And then he becomes a very scared man as he realizes that he's going to die, and, and this fear of death um, begins to dominate all of his thinking. Um, so there is a transformation. It's he is he is a character, not a person necessarily, but he is a character who evolves. Um, and Enkidu remains a most attractive figure. Uh, I guess, I mean, we're talking maybe versions a little bit. I wonder if you encountered it in the N.K. Sandars version. Almost everyone who's read the poem has read the Sandars version. And they all have, have this, uh, this sense that this is the actual version. In, in the Sandars version, Gilgamesh actually dies. And there are actual echoes of the, of the Book of Common Prayer in the translation. And this is remote. It couldn't be more remote from the original. She also doesn't observe... The, um, the narrative um, structure of, of the poem. Um, so she, she adds a great deal and subtracts a great deal. 
I, I promised we'd talk versions at some stage. But I, was, I went out and bought Andrew George's version and I'm trying to resist adding a translation from Bill Griffiths that tries to preserve the order and syntax of the original. Not to mention... Well, the Bill te- Griffiths is wonderful. It really is. Because I, when you read a translation, you, you're often... The, the translator wants you to forget that you're reading a translation. But the whole point is the otherness of the, of the culture it comes from should, should be something you always bear in mind. And Bill Griffiths is... Very, very good at uh, <laughs> making the otherness apparent. And what about Philip Terry's Dictator? Well, I, I published that book, and I love it. I think it's very, very strange. He, he set himself two challenges. One was to remember its otherness uh, by giving it a strange form. He divides every he divides it in kind of with kind of musical bars, every two syllables. So you're you're never able to actually even get a whole word. Uh, without a, without an interruption, if you like, but he also translates it into a language called Globish, which was invented to um, to to facilitate people learning business English, and only it, it's a, a very limited diction. I think it's fifteen hundred words, and there's no word for prostitute, so he has to call uh, the hierodule, the, the temple prostitute, a magazine girl, and it's it's very very funny. These adaptations, these these this necessary adaptation of a limited language to a remote text. So it's, it squeezes out the subjectivity of the translator. You say Gilgamesh is vulnerable, impacted upon, commandeered, reread and misread. Yes, I mean, it, it, there is a feminist reading of it, which, which foregrounds um, and, as it were, redeems the, 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 the temple prostitute and, and, uh, and the rather <laughs> some, some of the rather weird goddesses that, that occur. You know, there is a, obviously an ecological reading of it. There's a colonial reading of it. I mean, there are lots of different ways of reading the poem, all of which um, the poem accepts. It's kind of a great receiver of these different views, but none of which is complete. Exactly. And uh, I mean, despite the, the poem's opening exhortations, I mean, in Andrew George's version, um, he suggests we should climb Uruk's wall, take the stairway, examine the brickwork. It's, it's not even clear that Gilgamesh is coming out of an oral tradition at all. Well, I think this is one of the, one of the assumptions that we make now, possibly because of the great scholarship of Lord and Perry and the, the, the assumption that the Homeric poems began as oral poems. Um, we assume, therefore, that all early poems are primitive in this, in this that they come from a from a, a culture full of mnemonics, and in fact, there is no there's no reason to, to assume that it was. It could have been a literary poem from you know from the very beginning. My 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 sense of it is that it is based on a number of uh, disparate narratives which were brought together into this um, into this poem that we have. Um, this curious redactor. Uh, Sinlechi Unini sort of brought them together at some stage, but it is not a—it's not a, a finished uh, artifact. It's—it's um, it's a, a wonderful amalgam, but I don't think it is a, a, a work in the way that, say, the the Odyssey is, or indeed the Iliad, which also combine a lot of stories. You suggest the poem, with its collection of praise poetry, prayers, debate, dialogue, diatribe, and of course lament, is is better thought of as an anthology of genres, but. Isn't genre simply a, a later invention, a way of a way of controlling readers' expectations? That is only important in a world where there's a choice of what to read. Yes, yes, you're entirely right, and I think the, the, it may be the source, it may be the, the kind of fonds at origo of, of genres rather than a, a, an anthology of them. Yes, I, I I probably expressed myself badly there. <laughs> <laughs> Apology accepted. <laughs> the, the, no. weird, the weirdest thing about the poem, I think, is that there's almost no concrete detail in it. I mean, there, there, there are lots of um, statements of measurement, there are lots of uh, measurements of time, usually sevens and sixes, 
but there is so that when for example the great ark is built uh, in, in to, to escape the flood um, some people have thought that the ark was a boat shape some people have thought that it was cubic cubic I mean Edwin Morgan his translation makes it into a kind of giant enormous Rubik cube and then uh, Irving Finkel the most amusing of all the the Assyriologists I think made it into a kind of circle a, a, a kind of almost like a huge half bubble and he actually built a model of this and uh, the, the model was filmed and, and uh, filled it with all sorts of things and proved that it could it would have floated and uh, so there, all, all, there, there is nothing t- to we, we can't actually get a very strong sense of the scale of Gilgamesh himself you know the measurements that we're given are, are epic and vast but they don't really quite go together so uh, for those who don't already know, for the, the Gilgamesh scholars or the non-Gilgamesh scholars amongst us, what's the current state of play of the original text? Uh, the original text is still not complete, obviously. I think most, most great Assyriologists um, hope that one day uh, the, the full text will be extracted from the de- desert. It's come to us in many fragments from many different lands, from, as, from Turkey at the one extreme and from Iraq at the other extreme, and in different languages, different versions of Assyria in different, different later languages. And so it has been a huge jigsaw puzzle to assemble what we now have, the 12 tablets. And every so often, well, more frequently than you might think, there, a, new, a new fragment is, is uh, discovered which fills in one of the gaps. So it's, it is like a, a vast scholarly jigsaw puzzle which has been put together over the years. And they are literally fragments. They're all shards, you might say. They're bits of clay. Yes, they're, they're, they're bits of tablets. Since the book was written on tablets with a, with a burin, they cut, they cut the, the cuneiform script into these tablets. And they must have worked at great speed. I, when you look at the tablets and feel them, there's wonderful texture about them. Um, and there were there were many many copies of the poem clearly in 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 different at different times in different cultures. So it, it uh, but it was all done on clay. The, uh, it was probably later on done on papyrus, but I suppose those have possibly perished. To situate uh, non Gilgamesh scholars, what kind of time period are we talking? Uh, well, we're talking about a period probably that stretches from about probably twelve hundred fourteen hundred BC right up to well even earlier, um, right up to the end of the, the, the Babylonian Empire. It's, it's a very long period, it's about two millennia. Mm, yeah, you say that Gilgamesh belongs nowhere and it belongs everywhere, and you argue that we should approach the poem, if not on its own terms, which we cannot know with any certainty, then not on our terms either. But that kind of intrigues and worries me, because don't we always have to read from somewhere? It's the only poem I know, apart from ballads, it's the only long poem I know where we cannot identify a speaker. There's no narrator, there's no I. So it's a poem without an author. It's a poem that, that as it were, emerges from a culture. It's not a kind of primitive culture. It's a, kind, a very, very sophisticated culture given the, the, the nature of its structure, the nature of the mnemonics in the poem that you mentioned. Um, it's, um, so it's, it's not as though we're dealing with something primitive at all. We're dealing with something that is, is certainly equal to or superior to ourselves. Uh, not in technology, of course, but um, in, uh, in, in composition. And, it, and we have nothing like it. Michael Schmidt's Gilgamesh, The Life of a Poem is published by Princeton University Press. Next week, we'll be talking about poetry again with Chris McCabe, Valgina Mort and Vaughan Rappatahanna. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, do get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And please do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and me, Claire Armistead, and our producer, Esther Opoku-Jenny, thank you for listening, and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.